so yeah, the Split Take podcast was originally sponsored by beer, uh, but <laughs> as of late, it is now sponsored by coffee. Which, you know, both good, both good. Well, what are you, what are you drinking? Uh, just, uh, well, I, I got my usual from Starbucks, which is a Grande Nitro Cold Brew with Sweet Cream. Um, and you can see on the label, it says Sweet Cream, but that is black as night, which I don't mind because I also drink it black, but. It was a very, very long line at Starbucks today, and they were very flustered. And even though they didn't make my order the way I wanted it, I wasn't going to be like, oh, could you put stuff in there? Because they looked pissed. So I'm reluctantly drinking black cold brew. They don't know it, but they're very grateful you didn't they don't. say anything. I truly am a saint. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this morning I'm drinking some Pete's coffee. Pete's? Peter's? Pete's. Some homemade, brewed, right in the home. Now, here's here's something I want to ask you. Did you use your ten dollar off Criterion coupon yet? No. Because there's going to be a sale. When? Soonish at some point yeah, yeah. in the future. Well, I'm trying to save money at the moment. That's now. fair. Me too. But did I tell you what I got? Well, no, you didn't. Or maybe you didn't. I forgot. Either way. Uh, Hold on. It's It's not what you think it is. Oh, oh, you did. You yeah. did mention that. Janice, a long sleeve Janice Films t-shirt. Uh, that's that's cheap because the shirt was How cheaper was than it? a Criterion. Oh. The, the, the shirts are $25. So by the time shipping costs and tax factored in with the $10 off coupon, it was $21, which that's not a bad deal for a shirt. They always get me with the shipping yeah. on Criterion because I, I would buy more. If it was like Prime, where yeah, I didn't have to worry about shipping at all, and I wanted to pre-order Parasite, yeah, but you know you pre-order Parasite at thirty bucks, and then you have to pay more in shipping, and it just gets to be yeah. a whole deal. At that point, it's not worth it. With the um the Criterion sales, the ones that come from their site, mm-hmm. uh, I never spend more than like a hundred dollars, or I never buy like more than three or four. Whereas for the Barnes and Noble sale, I'll get like 10, 10 or 15. I was so close to pre-ordering Parasite the, this past week. But then I went on, I put it in my cart, I was going to check out, and then it said, add 15 more dollars for free shipping. Ooh. And I'm like, God damn it, Criterion, you know I want to add 15 more dollars, but I'm not here to spend money. <laughs> Except well, on Parasite. <laughs> All I'm saying is that if you want to spend 15 more dollars, I know one thing that we definitely got to get is Ghost Dog. Well, I'll just wait for the sale. It's also, uh, you can pre-order Parasite on Amazon for $27. Oh, and I got Amazon Prime, so it's clearly a better deal. How many times have you seen Parasite? Five. I've maybe seen six. I've seen it seven times. How many have? And I'm very excited to watch it again. Because isn't there a commentary? Is there? I hope so. Did you ever see Minding the Gap? I did not. So Criterion, uh, to explain for the viewers, Criterion just recently, the other day, announced their January 2021 releases. And Minding the Gap was one of them. Which Have is... you seen Minding the Gap? Oh, yes. It's amazing. Okay. I've, it looks great. I'm, I'm excited for it. It's a very good documentary. It's essentially just about three uh, kids... The, the, it's a documentary chronicling the the like lives of kids as they grow up to young adults and they all go different ways and you know tragic funny heartwarming but I'm really interested because the the commentary track is recorded by those three kids. Ooh. Yeah, which they did the same thing for Hoop Dreams. I don't know if you ever saw Hoop Dreams. Hoop no. Dreams was like an 8-year long documentary where they chronicled like middle school kids as they got basketball careers all the way up to like college and high school and how it all fell apart. And they were, did the same thing where they had those two people as like adults in the 2020s comment on it. And I haven't seen that commentary, but it seems very interesting. I was curious. So I looked up my, uh, now I can look up my, uh, my film watching stats on, oh on letterboxd. Oh yes. Yes. Cause he's a pro or patron patron patron. I don't know the difference. Yeah. The higher one. I'm sure I knew what the difference was at one point whenever I got it, but we're a month and a half. It's a month patron because I'm a pro. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So Parasite, I've, I've seen seven times. Oh, so we're tied. Can you guess what I've seen 
I've uh, in terms of just what I've logged on Letterboxd within the last three years. Can you guess what the the film I've seen the most is? Parasite's number two. Uh, it's Revenge of the Sith. No. Oh. <laughs> I don't. I don't know that. It I'm is. Clueless. It is. You're you're gonna be like, why didn't I guess that? It's so obvious once I tell you. It's Paddington two. Oh, okay. Yeah. Which eight fair. times I've seen in the last three years. Well, you know, I've been thinking about watching it again recently. It's been too long. And it's interesting that everything. So it's Paddington two eight times. Parasite seven times. And then the rest of them are just four times. Oh, wow. 15 other movies are just four. Apparently, I just like watching movies four times and then leaving it at that. There, there is a part in the Charlie Kaufman book where the main character, who's this neurotic film critic, is like, you really haven't seen a film unless you've seen it seven times. I've seen One, Parasite seven times, so I guess I know it. Well, the, he his reasoning is like, you see it once, then you see it twice, and you see it a third time to reflect and everything. Then you see it once with DVD commentary. Then you see it once while you're sitting upside down so you can see how the symmetry looks from all angles. Then you watch it once backwards so you can see if it tells a different story. <laughs> and then like once with the sound off. Okay, good. I was, I was wondering, <laughs> did he mention? Because that's actually a good way to watch movies. It, it, well, the it depends on the movie. It's, well, it's, it's a horrible a good, it's a way movie. to watch my dinner with Andre. <laughs> <laughs> you could always have subtitles. Uh, well that's cheating it would be it would be a picture book at that point a picture novel it, oh god the, the movie lock with tom hardy ah yes what's the entirety of the movie is him in a car but something like parasite and paddington too yeah well Two good yeah. movies you could watch with the sound off watch any wes anderson movie with the sound off mm-hmm. most really good movies you could watch the sound off michelle hanukkah would be a good movie to watch with the sound off his movies which reminds me, the next sale, I, I've I've been slowly assembling my Criterion wish list on the website, mm-hmm. and I think the one I'm going to get next sale is the Piano Teacher. Ooh, you haven't seen that one yet, have you? No, I haven't. Uh, I want to see that in a more. I haven't seen either of those. As long as I get on the sale, like at the very beginning. Yeah, I'm going to get House. Although I think House is likely to sell out very quick. You don't Special. have house? No. You've seen we've it, though, right? We, yes, we've discussed this on the podcast, actually. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, because it's like the first one everyone gets. It's, an, it's October. It's, you know, I think it's time. I need to watch it, it again. Time. I'll happily watch it. And then I think I'll get the Before Trilogy, and maybe I'll call it a day, because I'm, I'm saving money for a camera. There you go. Well, all I'm saying is that, you know, if you want to remind yourself, you did purchase the Bergman box this year. That is a pretty hefty purchase as far as there is a small go. chance. Actually, because Criterion sent the $10 off. Yeah, they ensured I was going to spend money at the sale. They bought Since you. I spent so much money at the Barnes and Noble sale, I was legitimately considering not just ignoring the, the Criterion sale. Yeah. But how can you? Yeah, I feel like you have to get at least two. Because you have to be getting your full, at least two. I never get that much in the actual Criterion sale. So Barnes & Noble, who I spent last year at the Barnes & Noble sale, I, or the summer one, I spent like $500 <laughs> over the course of a month. Yeah, yeah, like, like I did. Still, have, still haven't finished. Same. I, look, this one. Still wrapped. I, first <laughs> thing I do wrapped. whenever I get a, any Blu-ray, actually, is I unwrap it and I stick it in the Blu-ray player just to look at the main menu and to... Uh, to to use it immediately so yeah because i know it'll probably some of them will inevitably sit on the shelf for a while before i get to them again i'm telling you now next weekend you know what next weekend is hmm. for october Kawhi Don. Ooh, Kawhi Don. ah i like i like anthology films maybe we should do an anthology film of of what <laughs> i don't know we each direct a short about a i think we've talked about this before there's a theme yeah well and we yeah. each write different short based on i feel thing. like is but is, isn't quite on all the same director yes so it's it's different but yeah. still because i feel like most anthology movies where it's multiple directors are giant piles of shit could be but were the directors uh friends well the podcast i i'm go that's true i'm well my my assumption is based off of four rooms ah which is just awful yeah I, there's not there's not really that many anthology films like it's pretty rare 
But when an anthology film is all one director, it's usually good. Rare, but good. Well, yeah, like Jim Jarmusch has two amazing anthology mm, films. Mm-hmm. Um, Coen Brothers has an anthology film. This one is apparently good, quite on. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or, ooh, you do the, uh, the same story told three or, three or four different times, but each one is from a different character's perspective. So it's like Rashomon, Rashomon. but each segment is a different director telling the same story from a different perspective. Have you ever seen that uh, Simpsons Rashomon joke? Yes, of course I have. <laughs> it, it's routinely posted on the Criterion subreddit. Every, is that, uh, every once the other in a while. day I saw it. It's great. It's great. It is. It is. The, the Simpsons has some quality. Uh, Surprisingly cinephile jokes. Yes. The My Dinner with Andre video game. Classic. <laughs> so what else? Anything? We're going to save our horror film watching discussions for the end of the month, aren't we? Oh, we're not even going to talk about Black Christmas. Oh, we we can. We don't have we, to. Save uh, we, can, we can wait. I'm not because the thing. I'm not watching as many horror movies as I'd like. Unfortunately, I am watching horror movies more than I usually do. I I never watch horror films. So the four this month is a sizable four? sizable increase from my previous or so. Well, depends on I, ha- depends on how you uh, define horror because I've been watching quite a few. Uh, South Korean thrillers. Well, I started my horror watching, I guess, late September. I did one, two, three, four, five, only five. So I'm going to try and watch um, Audition again this weekend. Ah. Oh, you know what else I'm watching for the horror season? Hmm. Where did it go? Uh, oh, one cut, one of, cut the of the dead. dead. It's, a, it's a good steal. Yeah. Oh, my God. Case. A Best Buy, too. $13. Yeah. I. I didn't pick it up when I saw it. Should have. I mean, t- to be fair, the steelbook. I mean, aside from, I mean, the steelbook's nice, but it's the same cover as everything else, and there's no real special features. So it's not the it's not the best. Do other versions of the film have special features? Well, no, but you know, it makes you wonder why you're paying more for literally just the book. Which it's a nice book. Well, do you want to talk about non horror movies that we've watched recently then? Because I only have about two or three. Great. We'll do a quick rundown and then just jump into our uh, okay. Our quick main rundown. Uh, well, I've watched two Coen Brothers movies. Rewatched, obviously. I think a lot of people did the same thing I did last week, where they got on Netflix and then immediately Netflix is like, "Oh, hey, we have Fargo now," and everyone's like, "Oh, okay, well, I I can watch oh, Fargo. <laughs> I can go for that." <laughs> yeah. So Not I did. Quite the season. You need to wait a little bit though. Yeah. That but the thing about Fargo is it's one of those movies that I can watch at any time. Sure, but I the most appropriate time. No, you're you're not wrong. It's cool. It it's funny. It's brief. It's like very well paced. Um, there's a lot of really great filmmaking, but it's not super like flashy. It's really subtle. Like one of my favorite scenes they've ever done is the scene where um the 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 wife gets kidnapped. Where she's just watching that like, <laughs> like Good Morning show, and then she looks over at the window, turns. and Steve Buscemi's just like slowly trotting through, and then he looks through the window, and she does nothing for a good ten seconds. She's just shocked, and she does nothing until he breaks the window open. That whole scene is one of my favorites. I also rewatched Blood Simple, oh. which compared which I, to like deserves a a, re, a rewatch from me blood simple is like it's very few times where you see a director just immediately know what they're about um but weirdly enough blood simple is one of those like the few director debuts where like you can see that they got less stylish as they went on like hmm. bloods not that they don't have style but their style sure. is a lot more atmospheric and in their writing Whereas Blood Simple has a lot of like, I know they were close friends with Sam Raimi at the time, but they have some like really, really flashy non Coen Brothersy shots. And you look at like the first two movies, Blood Simple and then Raising Arizona. Mm-hmm. And then for like the rest of their filmography, they're a lot less, you know, crazy with it. I also watched one of my criterions I picked up, which was The Elephant Man. Oh, yes. David Lynch. David Lynch. I saw is- that. Uh, also at Zia and was sorely tempted to buy it, but I didn't. Elephant Man is good. I find it. Have you seen it? No, I have. Not. It's 
good. I find it interesting because it is one of the least Lynch Lynch movies, mm-hmm. but it's not completely not Lynch because it's a very straightforward like drama with little hints of his style in the black and white and the weird sound design. Um, but then there are like these little moments like the beginning and like a few dream sequences that are just so Lynchian and they're they almost feel out of place with the rest of this movie. But it's funny because when they do show up, you're like, oh, yeah, this is David Lynch, <laughs> where it's like, you know, slow frame rate images of people screaming overlapped over elephant sounds and industrial clanging. And I'm like, oh, yeah, oh, you got to have <laughs> industrial clanging in a David Lynch film. <laughs> And then you have those like tracking shots where you see like the camera goes along pipes and light bulbs. And I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, that's David Lynch. So it's not my favorite or even like in the upper echelons, but it's good. It's definitely worth because it was also on sale. It was like twenty two dollars, which for a new criterion, that's pretty great. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, I think I need to I need to get it just because I have a lot of David Lynch. Yeah, because now I have. Every David, don't you? You have every David Lynch, don't you? You don't have Eraserhead. No, I need the Elephant Man and Blue Velvet. Oh yeah, Blue Velvet. Yeah. So then, yeah, I officially have all the David Lynch stuff. Which is easy. They're nice too. They all kind of fit together. Yeah, I usually prefer the actual cases over the digipacks, but I really like the David Lynch digipacks. Which is your favorite David Lynch of, digipack? Oh, it's definitely Eraserhead. <laughs> hmm. Well, you know what? I actually have not read the booklet inside of uh, Firewalk with me, so it might be that, actually. But they're all good. Yes, I was speaking more strictly from an aesthetic level. Oh, aesthetically? Eraserhead. No, the Eraserhead is nice. It's It's got some weight to it. It does. So does Mulholland Drive, though. Mulholland Drive is good, too, I guess. We were were playing some Minecraft the other day, and I told you about the quiet family, but uh, I'll make a mention of it here because it's I think it's oh, interesting. The South Korean with Song. The South Korean film with Song Kang Ho. It's currently on the Criterion channel directed by Kim Ji Won, who I wonder what else he did. Oh, he did. I saw the devil, the good, the bad, the weird. OK, so he's oh, he did stuff. the good, the bad, the weird. Wow. It was really fun. It was like a comedy horror, more of a comedy, though. It's about a family who buys a like a lodge way out in the middle of nowhere mm-hmm. to turn it into like a hotel or like a and b kind of thing, except they get no guests. And then they, and when they finally start getting guests, every single one of them starts killing themselves or <laughs> dies for some weird reason. Wait, is this supposed to be funny or a horror? It, it, it's funny oh, okay. with some elements of horror, but it, it was kind of like a, a screwball comedy, like a, a Lubavitch film. Where it's like people are doing wacky things and like trying to hide things from other people to be or not to be kind of like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Where there's a lot of moving pieces. Every character's doing something strange. Like there are five characters all trying to do the same thing in different ways. Yeah. The hilarity ensues and there's murder and there's some horror-esque elements. So it was really it was fun. That's all I'll say about it. So I recommend it. Anything else you've been watching? No, that's it. That's it, really. Aside from the horror stuff, but I'll just wait, I guess. Oh, you know what? I did watch um one uh Donna Hertzfeld short. Uh, Which Lily one? and Jim. Oh, I have not seen that one. It's 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 fine. It's it's really simple. It's really funny. Um, it's like, and it's another one of those things where you can see where he's gonna go later on because it's just a funny little simple premise, and at the end it gets like really bleak, <laughs> depressing. <laughs> Speaking of Don Hertzfeld, he did release his newest short, and I kind of want to watch them all now. The World of Tomorrow, mm. mm-hmm. because he released World of Tomorrow 3, so he's had three World of Tomorrows, and I think he plans on assembling them all into a, a film like he did with It's Such a Beautiful Day. Mm. So I might check that out, because it's it's sci-fi, <laughs> which is weird when you have stick figures, but it's stick figure sci-fi. I guess you might you might accept it easier the sci-fi. Yeah, you know if you're accepting the stick figures, then oh, science fiction. That's it. Sure, everyone not? I know who's seen it loves it. Some people even say it's better than it's such a beautiful day. It's very strange, but yeah, Doubt, I'm thinking but, about watching okay. it. I'll watch it. Yeah, aside from that, nothing though. Um, 
Yeah, I suppose we can go on to Inherent Vice. <laughs> oh, you don't have anything? No, I, I do, but nothing I care to talk about. Oh, okay. At the moment. I'd kind of like to just jump right into the, the film. Since this is your, your recommendation, how about yes. you take start the conversation? Oh, well, Inherent. Okay, so Inherent Vice is a 2014 Paul Thomas Anderson film that is an adaptation of the novel of the same name by Thomas Pynchon. 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 Uh, if you have you ever read a Pynchon book? No, I have not. They're all very bizarre, very funny. Uh, there's a there's a joke about one of them in Knives Out, the Gravity's Rainbow. Mm. Mm. Well, Gravity's Rainbow is like a notoriously giant and dense book. I think I've told you about this. The general the general plot, as brief as you can be, is that a, a an English general in World War II can sense when bombs are about to explode by his erections. <laughs> so he gets erections and he knows that a bomb is about to go off, <laughs> which that that is about as broad as you can paint it. But it's a very dense, very strange book. And all of his books are very esoteric and strange and absurd and um. So, like, the, a lot of his books are considered to be unfilmable. Mm. So this, my history with this movie is that it looked amazing. It has an amazing trailer. It's Paul Thomas Anderson with a giant ensemble cast doing what is essentially a comedy. Um, and I remember seeing it and thinking, I have no fucking clue what that was. I read the book and I thought, I have no fucking clue what that was. And then I read, I watched the movie again and I thought, I have no clue what that was, but I loved it. And I kind of get it now. And I've seen it like a few times. And I wanted to recommend it just because, you know, we've been doing a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson. Chinatown this is, is number three of our Paul Thomas Anderson yeah. series. <laughs> Chinatown was coming up on the list. I thought it was a good double feature because they're both noirs. They're both L.A. Sets. It is a very good double feature. Um, and for uh, another reason that I wanted to watch this because I was worried is because I lump this with movies like The Big Lebowski and Under the Silver Lake where they're like, a friend of mine put it, this is a subgenre known as meandering L.A. nonsense. And that's what <laughs> that's it is. That's a pretty good way of putting it. And I love both Under the Silver Lake and The Big Lebowski a lot. And uh, recently I kept thinking, do I like Inherent Vice or do I like the idea of Inherent Vice? Because I'd seen it twice. I remember really liking it both times. And, but it had been like two years since I saw it. Uh, so watching it again, I was like worried that I wasn't going to like it as much. But now I love it even more. I think I like it more than Under the Silver Lake now. But yeah, mm. it's uh, now correct me if I'm wrong. Did I see that you watched it twice? You are correct. You watched it twice. Wow. Well, I rented it off Amazon. Yeah. And you have 48 hours once you press play. <laughs> and so I, I watched it twice within 48 hours. The second time, I will admit, was a bit I wasn't fully zoned in on the film and I was more so just taking yeah. note. Like I wanted to fully just give myself to the film the first time, not have to worry about thinking about it for the podcast yeah uh and then i watched it the second time more so to kind of take notes and then do stuff on my computer maybe and then yeah zone back in so it wasn't a wasn't like a full 100 percent viewing but it was a second viewing yeah and to give just a brief synopsis of the plot um there is uh joaquin phoenix plays doc sportello who is a hippie detective living on the beaches of california whose ex-girlfriend comes up shows up one day and says, I need you to find my husband. He's being thrown in the loony bin for no reason. Or boyfriend, not husband. Uh, because she's cheating. She is the man's mistress. But base, basic missing person's job that escalates and elevates and unfolds into some giant weird conspiracy that I don't think he even fully understands. It's just a noir. It's a, it's a noir comedy thing with stoner elements where you're protagonist is perpetually intoxicated or or under some sort of substance at all times so you can't really tell what's real and what's hallucinatory but that's that's the main plot as it were. yeah yeah and it's got a pretty stacked cast amazingly stacked. joaquin cast. phoenix josh brolin owen wilson Reese, Reese Witherspoon, Witherspoon, Benicio del Toro, Martin, Martin Short, Short, <laughs> Martin Short. Oh my God! So, I'm curious to hear what you think. Since this this was a recommendation from Chandler, and I'm gonna I'm going to approach it as such, <laughs> just oh, to no. begin my my thoughts on the film. And all I'm gonna say is that watching this, 
Chandler is a big fan of the film Under the Silver Lake. <laughs> has been trying to get many people to to watch that film and to like the film as much as he has. Yes. As much as and he does. I have about and a 10% success, success rate. <laughs> yeah, he has succeeded once or twice. Uh, and for the most part, everyone else just says, it's fine. And I, I didn't, I, I guess I got it, but I didn't get it. Like why you, you were so drawn to this film, to, this to Under the Silver Lake. Oh, okay. And after watching Inherent Vice, the preference of of chandler for this kind of of film genre makes a lot more sense (laughs) or at the very least i understand it more and this is what what i got out of this is what i think you you wanted me to get out of uh under Under the the silver Silver lake Lake. okay so you like this more than under the silver lake yes i i quite (laughs) like inherent vice i thought it was pretty good yeah let let me let me also state for the record, again, I really like Inherent Vice. It was pretty good. <laughs> now I'm going to spend the rest of the time being rather harsh on the film. Oh, no. <laughs> well, maybe not the rest of the time, but uh, I, I think it has some serious issues, which makes it one of the lesser Paul Thomas Anderson films oh, for me. Oh, no. But like, I think I would rank it under The Master. Wow, because I always got the impression that you really didn't like the master. Here's the thing with the master. And since we're doing a Paul Thomas Anderson uh, thing on this podcast, we'll probably get to that. So I won't won't say too much. Um, The master is a brilliant, brilliantly made film (laughs) that I just think lacks any concept of pacing or cohesion or point, shall I say? Yeah, Uh, like a like a real cohesive point. It has a point. Yeah, yeah, uh, but I I don't think it it comes together as neatly as uh, some people think it does. Anyway, I enjoy Inherent Vice more than The Master. Like this was an enjoyable experience to watch, and I'd watch it again, mm-hmm. and probably again. Uh, like I'd return to this <laughs> film, but at some point, I just have to admit that The Master was just the more well put together film. Yeah, well, on that's a the thing. Level. So uh, I appreciate the, in- the Master more, maybe. Yeah, that's the thing with Inherent Vice is that. When you compare it to his other movies, it is a lot less cinematic. Yeah. There's no like, I feel like every Paul Thomas Anderson movie has that wow shot. The Master, you have that boat shot. Phantom 30, mm-hmm. you have the New Year's Eve party. This one doesn't really have one of those. But what I, what I really appreciated this time around was that it's just atmosphere. It's kind of like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where it's not like the most insane spectacle e type film but the way that they capture that time and place in american history is very detailed mm-hmm. and a lot of the same like enjoyment i get out of those big shots in those other movies i get just pouring over the little details in this movie i i think the atmosphere is a little inconsistent for me in inherent vice at, at some points like it, it it leans really heavily into it and then it leans like elsewhere but I do have to say, like, if you I'm I'm not as into like the 70s aesthetic and like this atmosphere that it's trying to create. Yeah. Which is why he hates Taxi Driver. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you are that kind of person, I can see how someone could get really into this film because it would work very well for someone who like this atmosphere is, yeah. you know, what, what they're in for. Kind of like I really dig the atmosphere and vibe of Melville films, the cold oh, French yeah. thing. <laughs> <Cold> French. <laughs> well, this is what it is. No, you're not wrong. So, you know, a lot of people say that Inherent Vice is a confusing film, that there's a lot going on, that they don't always understand it, that you really have to pay attention to it. Right? Yeah, no, the, the, yeah, okay, it's okay. a huge criticism. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I didn't necessarily find that to be the case. I did and I didn't. Yeah. On my first viewing, I think I followed it as well as anyone can follow it mm-hmm. on a first viewing. And the problem, I think, is that not so much the the plot can't be followed, because I think it can be quite easily. It's that the characters are like interpersonal relationships in the film aren't very clear 
except for a few exceptions. Okay. You're just kind of plopping from one scene to another, meeting different characters, and it's not very contained. And the scenes that are contained, like the scenes between Doc and Bigfoot, (laughs) those are very easy to understand because you are familiar with the characters. You don't have to learn someone else's character before you start paying attention to the exposition and what's going on. Yeah. So stuff with reoccurring characters is quite easy to follow along. It's just so often the film is just pulling you into new scenarios with new people, referencing people you maybe have met once, maybe not. Yeah. A lot of names. It's there's a lot too much, I think. I think a huge thing that this movie doesn't really um, portray all that well is that I think when most noir films like the structure is okay, inciting isn't we have a case. Let's everything that you see from now on is devoted to this case. Whereas in this movie, he takes the case, but he's also taking other cases, which I don't think he necessarily like when when the when um the African-American guy comes and he's looking for his old partner, that's a completely different case. Uh, and the, tangentially related, but tangent. Yeah, they, all the cases are related, but he's taking these cases on separately. Like the, the 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 mother who's looking for Owen Wilson. That's another case. But these cases all sort of come together. And it's like Lebowski. We're like, I don't really know what's going on, but it's entertaining. And the first few watches of this, I'm, I never I always got the 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 idea that all of these cases were related. I got mm-hmm. things like the Golden Fang and how that's related to these Nazis and how it's related to the housing developments. I all understood all that. It's the specifics to how they were connected that I'm always hazy on. But that to me doesn't matter because I think I don't think there's a single noir that I've ever seen where I can clearly recall the plot because they're notoriously complex. But the vibe is consistent. And I do think every just about every character in this movie is very. It's very separate, very. They have personality. Yeah. There's a lot of personality and there's a lot of character. And I think a lot of that, though, is superficial. Think so? Yeah. Not not all of it. Yeah. Can I just say that I Josh Brolin is so fucking funny in this movie. We'll get it right out of the way out of the bat. Josh Brolin as uh, wait, don't say it. Uh, Bigfoot <laughs> Bjornsson is by far my favorite part of this film. He's so funny. He's such a delight every time he's on screen. And multiple pancake. Oh my god! The the beginning of that scene was like pancakes aren't as good as my mother's but what i really go for is the respect <laughs> and then just starts yelling japanese at this guy he's just like yes yes sir my favorite bjornson moment it's like in lebowski where you know at the be- when i first saw it, the big moments from the funniest but now it's the in and out burger line that kills me this mm-hmm. time watching it the <laughs> the time where bigfoot calls doc and B- bigfoot's wife steps yeah, in oh, and yeah. takes the phone where uh, Bigfoot's wife is like, is this, oh, this is the Doc Sportello? Do you know the fortune we have spent on the therapy you've caused this man? And Bjornton's like, actually, the department handles a good deal. <laughs> My favorite part about that is Josh Bro- uh, Brown's acting is when she first picks up the phone from him <laughs> and she starts getting mad at Doc. You can see him, he's, he's smiling. He's like, oh, he's getting the, the shit now. <laughs> And then she starts bringing up his uh, his his bills, his health, mental health. Yeah. And then he, and then his his smile turns like, oh, why is she bringing this up <laughs> to him? He's a kid. <laughs> He's a little kid. Yeah. Or when um, he brings in Doc for the first time, he's like, you think uh, him and Shasta were lots of phallic imagery related to, to Bigfoot. <laughs> but then he's like, because he's eating the banana in the next scene. Just because at the end of the movie, when they bring up that um the golden fang killed his partner mm-hmm. and you got senses that there was some sort of romantic thing, but the way that they just like sort of fade that shot of him eating the banana over talking about him missing his partner. You're like, okay, <laughs> but that the funniest lines in this for me, one of them is when, uh, yeah, doc is at Bigfoot's desk and he's like, you think him were him and her were and does that thing. And he goes, F U C K I N G ing. And doc's like fucking <laughs> and then the best scene in the movie is at the end when he kicks open the door and eats all of his weed 
One of the things I really I noticed on the second time is that there's a line earlier in the film by Doc. I think they're they're either on the phone or they're uh, in person. Yeah. And Doc says something like, why didn't you just come to my place and kick the door down? Yeah. And Bigfoot's like, oh, I didn't feel like it. Well, in and the then book, later on the film, that happened. So yeah. it's technically set up, which was nice to see. In the book, there are a lot of details that were taken out, obviously, for the movie. But in the book, in the book, like it happens a lot. Where it happens like four or five times where Doc is just at home and Bigfoot kicks his door down. <laughs> it's like a thing that happens a lot in the book, but in the movie, it only shows it once. And I love when he kicks the door down. He like purposely steps on the glass parts <laughs> to break it even more. But yeah, you know, so there's there's definitely some characters that don't feel nearly as like flashy or have personality. I think Owen Wilson is comparatively tame. Um, but he's not like a character that I don't like because at the end, that's like the only real thing that gets resolved is that he is a, he reunites Owen Wilson with his family. That part always makes me happy. It's the most catharsis that you get out of this whole case is seeing him go home. I didn't really feel any sense of catharsis because it was so little in the film. We only really meet the the wife once in a great scene. And we meet him a few times. And I don't know, like I I wasn't endeared to their plight as a couple in a way that made it particularly satisfying at the end, which is so my issue is that this film needed to be shorter and stuff needed to be cut out it can still be confusing but i don't think that this kind of narrative sustains two and a half hours well even though i was entertained and the the thing i'm going to say is like it's it's all well directed really well acted but still excessive nonetheless yeah well directed excess but excess and the thing like i guess you could say the real narrative through line is doc and shasta and because that's you know how the film begins and it's essentially how it ends and she's popping up here and there and she's kind of the driving force for doc looking into all this stuff keeps him engaged my issue is that i think the ending where they're like spoilers i guess they're back they're together but they're not back together and doc says you know this this means we're not back together again and i feel like that was a really there's a good through line there in the in the film it's just that it's so little like it might take up 10 minutes of the two hours and 30 minutes of their screen time together and like really developing that relationship and what doc thinks of her even when he's not sharing a scene with her that i think that that amount of screen time was really well directed well done and i think it was enough it just wasn't enough when you pile all this stuff on top of it and it kind of gets buried to the point where it just I got to the end. I was like, okay, I liked it, but why did I watch it? I, th- I think the difference is like, for me, that, that narrative through line is like, it's, it's, you know, it's definitely the, the, the foundation, the center of everything that's happening. But I feel like the, the movie's focus is more so observational because a huge part of this movie is the setting where it's 1970 where it's like the sixties, but it's not really the sixties because a lot of the things of the sixties are like sort of fading away free love and stuff like that uh the rise of consumerism and um the post manson paranoia which is mm-hmm. demonstrated in that scene with martin short in the car um it's sort of like it this thing the where, era up really yeah. well historically where, where shasta is more like res, uh, refle- a, a, a reflection of that time that's sort of being lost she's the hippie girl who's now like in with a real estate mogul and even though Doc and Shasta are reunited, they're not reunited because she's representative of the 60s, which you'll never really experience again because that time is gone. So it's when you like it's when you sort of distill a lot of the big, absurd plot points into this idea, this transitionary theme that I think it becomes a lot more interesting. Um, but I also just love the absurdity of a heroin syndicate that's also linked to uh, dentists. Dentistry. <laughs> Uh, Martin Short as Dr. Rudy Blatnoid. That was that was that was a very fun part of the film. Yeah, yeah I really invested car. for a second there. Yo, There's not I, a lot I, of uh, tension throughout the film, which I no, think is another not until issue. the end, because I treat this more as a comedy than anything. 
but it's one of those well, things where I think it's a noir it, first off. Well, yeah, but it's a noir comedy where the comedy is like it's it's a it's a it's something that's funny, but it's only funny if you watched it like four or five times, which is a problem. <laughs> I'll admit, yeah. because when I was watching this, I'm like, do I even find this as funny as Lebowski? But after this is like my third time watching it. And now I'm like picking up on a lot of the little nuances that make me chuckle. So now I do find it really funny. But I can see on a first viewing where people are just like, what? On the first viewing, at least on that initial level, you're so interested in the mystery. Yeah. And the mystery is kind of, I think it's, it's plainly understandable, but it's nonsense. It is. When you boil, when you, you can understand it. Yeah. And it boils down to just stuff is going on. There's conspiracies and stuff. And it, I guess it, it, it captures that really well of like the paranoid conspiracy esque level of like the, the 70s and all that. Not just the, the paranoid culture, but the paranoia that instills from drug usage. Because mm. mm. there's a lot of smoking in this movie. But yeah, so that's what you latch on to. I guess, I guess my question was, and this is a rhetorical question, not an actual question, is like, if that's what the film is about, at least on you know, your initial viewing. Yeah and it doesn't ultimately get resolved in any really satisfying way, then I'm not really sure what you're supposed to get out of it. And if you find it funny, big if there, then I guess that is something you can get out of it. Uh, a good comparison to make is Army of Shadows, because I think Army of Shadows is really similar in that there is no real big narrative plot that... I mean, the plot is the war, and everything that happens in Army of Shadows is connected to d- developments in this war. And you can say at the end that there's not really much of a conclusion because, I, I mean, it ends on a narrative uh, thread that isn't really set up until like the middle. Yeah. So they're kind of similar in that they're just like you either get into this vibe in the way that they portray this time in because it's not even really a, an anti-war movie because it's not. It's not a movie that necessarily deals with themes of war. It's very specific to this part of the war, this paranoid section of espionage in the war where it's not it doesn't have anything to do with Nazis or valor or patriotism or stuff like that, where Inherent Vice is kind of similar, where it doesn't really have any big things to say. It's really confined to this time in America, this small little cultural transitionary period. So if you're into that, you're into that. If you're not, you're not. I just happen to be very into that. And again, it's funny. Like Under the Silver Lake, this like paranoid conspiracy plot of just jarbled uh, everything going on, multi-strand plot threads. This is the best I've seen of it so far that yeah. I liked the most. And I did really like it because you got you got Nazis, you got commies, you got hippies, you got the feds, detectives, cops drug dealers, real estate agents, dentistry. There's so <laughs> much shit. And it's, it is entertaining in that fact that there's just so much going on. Yeah. So that I like, like all that, that stuff is fun in, in principle. You just would have liked the little you more have mar- maritime law. <laughs> That's the thing is that what keeps me entertained is that I think just about every, because it's like a lot of noir movies. It's a lot of just two people talking and developing the plot via dialogue. There's not a lot of like, I mean, that's really what detective work is, is questioning and gathering leads and following up on the leads. And it's hard to make that entertaining. But I do think that a huge part of that is the writing, the writing and the direction. And, and I, we, you mentioned earlier that it's it's PTA's least cinematic work in yeah. terms of like big bombastic camera stuff. And I kind of missed that. And I might have the thing that I would have appreciated more maybe was like using the camera to visually create like connections and introduce new ideas into the subtext of the film. Yeah. Which isn't there so much, but it is in some scenes. Like I really appreciate I really like the, uh, the last supper shot (laughs) with Owen Wilson. That was fun. He's in the pizza. (laughs) And then there's, there's one moment that I think PTA leans into the cinematic nature. And that's when in the very beginning, Doc goes to the the development. What's it called? Jan- Channel View Estates. Yeah, yeah. And he's there's driving a car, and the music goes, and there's flags, and it's looking up at him, and it felt very cinematic there. Like no one was talking; it was just expressing the mood yeah. with 
sound and visuals. And that's was like, yeah, I would have liked a little bit more of that kind of sprinkled throughout the film. Cause I get like, he's going for a different style with this film than his other ones. And I appreciated that. Cause there's a lot of really great camera work where it's just a slow dolly in shot while two characters are talking. Like when he just cradles himself on the ground in front of the police station when the like droves of police officers are walking out or like in that, sh- that same shot in the channel of U States where he gets, you know, knocked out and he wakes up next to the dead guy. Mm-hmm. And then like when he gets up, you see like this whole army of police officers on the horizon with Bigfoot in the front. <laughs> Another Bigfoot moment that makes me laugh is uh, at the beginning when the, technically the first scene with Bigfoot, when he's watching the, the commercial. Oh yes. <laughs> he's like, He's got this really shitty hippie afro outfit put on and he's thing he says things like interest rates that are only described as far out. And then when he's watching that like cop show where Bigfoot is an extra. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it doesn't have a lot of those moments, but it's appreciating the little details in the production design. The 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 attention to detail and recreating this time is something that fills that same need for me. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can, the cinematography, when we say it's like tame, it's it's only in terms of shot composition, because I think the lighting is still amazing. Oh, yes. Especially the scenes like in Doc's apartment, like the blue light coming through the window and that vibe outside. Um, Yeah, it doesn't have any of those. Like, whoa, the closest thing, maybe when he meets Owen Wilson for the first time at that very like foggy dock. Yeah, and, you know, the Channel View Estates stuff. And I was going to say that I didn't like that. Owen Wilson in the foggy dock. Why? Because it looks fake. It, well, it looks out of place in the film. Like yeah. I get it's a noir, but I think PTA leaned too heavily into that influence there without doing it anywhere else in the film. Okay. It's so kind of stylized and visually in a way that the rest of the film isn't. Yeah, because a lot of the the movie... Um takes place during the daytime it's like chinatown where you know the the noir traits the harsh shadows are more set up by sunlight and hats and stuff like that now that that one does seem out of place again like i liked it for what it was and for how pga directed it i'm just not sure it fit ultimately yeah my other little kind of summation of, of my gripes is that he he adapted from what I've heard, he adapted the, the Pinchon novel quite, quite faithfully. Right. And he did like he adapted everything exactly and then cut it down. Did he really? Because there's a whole yeah. section in the book where they go to Las Vegas. I don't I doubt he filmed. I am now reminded of like listening to to go back to our Lord of the Rings discussion, <laughs> listening to Peter Jackson and company describe how they adapted Lord of the Rings, which is another book with a lot of people, a lot of characters, references to things that you don't yeah. see and stuff like that. And how they made conscious decisions to cut characters out and to give parts from one character to other characters to like consolidate stuff. And particularly in the beginning, I think that there are two missteps, well-directed missteps, but missteps. <laughs> and one is uh, Doc's, was it his aunt, Aunt Reet? Oh, the, the, the lady is applying her makeup. <laughs> yep. Yep. She so shows up for one scene just to deliver a, an exposition dump, which I found her, her character really interesting. Yeah. And fun and a lot of personality. Cut it. Give it to someone else. The other character is the, the Black Panther character. Yeah. Either you need to have him in the film more or cut him. There are, there are other instances where you, in the beginning of the film, you are introducing characters for one scene and then not having them show up again which I think leads to con- early confusion, which yeah. compounds itself, which I think you need to do the opposite is make it simpler in the beginning so you can slowly fade into the... the. See, that 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 is like a, a double-edged sword for me because what it does is it makes the first viewing more simple and streamlined, but the more I watch it, the more I appreciate those little spurts into nowhere so it Mm. like it makes the first viewing simpler but later viewings less interesting because i do love the ant character who shows up for one scene and i do love the black panther character who shows up for one scene um but yeah that's yeah i get it though and the fbi who are there for one scene really and then they're technically in the background of another scene (laughs) yeah yeah 
it's also because I'm just like, I would have liked more because I enjoyed them when they were on screen. Yeah, yeah. It got it. it. Well, I mean, that's the thing, though, is that I know his he, he has more runtime. You could say the same thing about Rudy Blatnoid, who's really only in the movie for about four or five minutes before he's killed on a trampoline off screen. But it, it's a bit more meaty of a scene. Yeah. After watching this, I restructured my PTA ranked list. Hmm. Okay. And now I'm going to I'll just give you a quick rundown. I put an inherent vice back at the top. Phantom Thread at two. Those are the two S tiers. Five out of fives. Amazing. Uh, below that, I put the master. Below that, I put Punch Drunk Love. And below that, I put There Will Be Blood. And then Boogie Nights, and I still haven't seen Heart 8 and Magnolia. At this point, it's just Mag- uh, Heart 8 that I need to see. Heart 8's another one I wish would come out in Criterion because I hope that they. Heart 8 was like originally like 45 minutes longer when they cut it, a lot of it. Hmm. And I'd like to see if maybe they can get that cut stuff back, but I think it's too late at this point. But yeah, I think it's interesting that for me, technically speaking, my least favorite PTA film is There Will Be Blood and it's still a masterpiece. (laughs) I think my my ranking as it currently stands would be Phantom Threat at number one, Punch Drunk Love, There Will Be Blood, Boogie Nights, The Master, Inherent Vice and Magnolia. Wow. With the caveat that I I do quite like inherent vice and found it more entertaining than the master so, five so you're and a lot six. more objective with no just when it comes ranking. to those two okay because i think objectively i don't know i would say probably there'll be blood is his best movie but hey hey it, hey i like punch drunk love what can i say whenever we do magnolia i think we need to get someone on this podcast to make unless you like that. really like it we need to get someone on the podcast that really likes it because I need someone to explain it to me in person. Interesting. Because, yeah, I'll admit a huge reason that I have, I've put it off for so long. So every scene I see from it, I'm like, it doesn't look like it's for me. Because that early phase of his career, I feel like he was leaning very hard into his influences. Like, a lot more bombastic. Gorsese movie. Uh, and then he has his Altman movies. And it wasn't until like Punch Drunk Love where you're like, okay, this is a PTA movie. Yeah, I think that's about it. And Hair Advice. And Hair Advice you know, is a good if, movie. If you like noir and comedy, I think it's worth it just for, for Josh Brolin's performance. Joaquin <laughs> Phoenix is great. Well, yeah, Joaquin Phoenix is great in this. Because usually I find the, the funniest thing about um, these noirs is that I typically find the protagonist to be the least interesting character. Like under the Silver Lake, I don't think the main character is all that interesting. Oh, OK. The well, dude at least is, you admitted it. Oh, yeah. I, I, the... He's like my least favorite part of the movie. He's great, but he's my least favorite part of the movie. The dude is an exception because I think he's the best character in that movie. Um, but I really I think it was this time that I really realized how much I like uh, Joaquin Phoenix in this movie. But no, Josh Brolin's still my favorite. And I want Mortal Pennicure. My favorite is at the end when he like watches him leave and he just angrily goes, Mortal Pennicure! The guy in the background's like, bye. Okay. <laughs> I'll watch I'll watch the film again just for that scene. <laughs> what I go here for this the respect proceeds to yell at these Japanese men. 